acknowledge the glory and worthiness of, of God. Um, but that song this morning is going to, as much as it encourages us, serve as a juxtaposition against one who is in the book of Revelation who will never, until he is forced, say the words that we just heard. Um, that, that, song, that that song transports you into the throne room of God and surrounds you with the glory of who He is and what it's like in His presence. And uh, you, you hear Scripture reflected in the lyrics, surrounded in rainbows of living color, flashes of lightning, rolls of thunder, that you, you hear the song of the living creatures and the elders and the angels, ten thousands upon ten thousands, singing the glory of God. But there is one in the book of Revelation who does not acknowledge the glory of God. He acknowledges one person's glory, and that is his own. He denies God in every facet of his life, and he enters the scene today. Um, I want to give you the central idea of this sermon from the beginning, and I was joking with Mark before we started. I said I knew around about Tuesday that this sermon was going to be heavy. I didn't know how heavy it was going to be because I forgot that I had cardstock still in the printer. So my notes are a little bit heavier than they normally would be. But... Um, I'm going to read a little bit today because I want to make sure my thoughts don't get jumbled and I don't ramble. I, I took several times this week and I sat down and typed out exactly what I wanted to say in specific areas. So the central idea of this sermon is one of those times. So I'm going to give it at the outset and then we'll look at these two points that I'm going to break down our text in today. That God made us to be like Him. And as a result of God making us to be like Him, at the very beginning of the Bible, that God made us in His image. In His image, He created us. Male and female, He created us. As a result of Him creating us in His image, we want to be like Him. That we recognize intuitively that there is something earthy about us, but there's also something divine. Uh, and, and we just can't shake that divinity that we know is there. Any of you who have pets at home, you know this. That both of you are physical. That both of you are matter. That your atoms that are put together. That your hair and their fur are somewhat similar. But there is something different between you and your dog. Okay? You, you recognize that. You get it. That I've got 40 pounds worth of cat in my house and 25 pounds worth of daughter. And if, God forbid, the pastorium were to ever catch on fire, I would not blink and I would save the 25 pounds of daughter and leave the 40 pounds of cat to fend for themselves. They'd probably be okay, but there's something different between us and the rest of creation, right? You can look at yourself in the mirror and figure that out. But in Genesis 3, we gave up our birthright. Even though God made us in His image, Satan told us that we lacked something in order to be like Him. Satan told us that God was actually holding back the good stuff from us, and we believed Him. So God created us at our peak. And ever since we disobeyed Him, we've been going downhill. 
He still calls us to obedience with the promise that if we will just trust and obey Him, we can still be like Him and our destiny can be restored. There's still hope. We can still be like God. But Satan is also still telling the same lie. He is telling us that our best is ahead of us and all that is holding us back is God. In other words, we're not moving downhill. We're doing this and we've hit a roadblock and it's this concept of God. If we would just leave that old notion of obedience to a God who may or may not be there behind and follow our hearts, we can seize our destiny on our own. God is not needed. So to formulate the situation as two opposing opposites, God's Word says that He created humanity at our peak and our abandonment of Him is bringing us low, eventually ending in our destruction. Satan's lie is that humanity began at our low point and our abandonment of God will exalt us ever higher eventually ending in our own ascendance to Godhood ourselves. Those are two opposing statements. God says we start high, and ever since we disobeyed Him, we're going low. Satan says we started low, and if we could just dispense with this idea of God, we'll move on ever higher. Today, we are going to see Jesus open the first four seals on this scroll that he took a couple of weeks ago. This seal, to recap it before we read the text, is a redemptor's title deed to all of creation and to human destiny. It's what we forfeited when we disobeyed God. And Christ, our worthy and able kinsman redeemer, has been qualified to take this scroll and take back the inheritance that God had always planned for humanity to have. But this scroll is sealed. That this scroll must be unsealed. It must be opened. That there is a process to the taking back of creation. And part of that process is God finally lifting His hand and saying, if you want life without me, I'll show you what it looks like. I told you this was going to get heavy real quick, didn't I? Welcome to the first four seals of the book of Revelation. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come and see, and another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse. 
And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with them. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just make clear to us exactly what dwells in a fallen, unregenerate heart and the danger that we are in as long as we put off giving that heart to Jesus to be healed and brought back to life. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so it's all down here from, downhill from here, y'all. Uh, that we started at creation, that we kind of told the entire story a couple of weeks ago, that the Bible is the grand story of redemption, that the fact, of the, I mean, this sermon series, if you go on the website and you look and you go to download some of these old, the old, old sermons since we started this, the name of the sermon series is Jesus Wins. Okay, if you go on and you look online and you try and find the sermon series, it's titled Revelation, Jesus Wins. Because that's the point of the book. Okay? That's the point of the entirety of the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins. But that does not mean that there is not an opposition. That ever since Satan rears his ugly little snake-like head in the third chapter of Genesis, there's been an opposition. And humanity has joined Satan in this opposition of God. But to this point, God has not allowed fallen humanity to completely express its fallenness. That there is a supernatural block on us achieving our true fallen potential. Well, the first four seals show what happens whenever God removes that block. He doesn't just unseal the scroll. He unseals the floodgates and lets lets the, the wicked that is in humanity's hearts flow. And that begins with arguably the worst seal. The first one. Say, wait a minute, Josh, we just read that. The fourth seal is death. Yes, but you don't get to the fourth seal unless you open one, two, and three, do you? The first one is like the bowling pin at the front of the triangle that if you don't knock it down, the other ones aren't going. The first seal is the worst. And I want to ask as we open the first seal, what does quote-unquote good without God really look like? Good without God, is it even possible? Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, the white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Is this rider Jesus? No. This rider is not Jesus. Let me walk a few reasons with you why this rider is not Jesus. If this rider is Jesus, then who's opening the scroll? Are there two of him? No. This rider has a bow. Up until this point, Jesus has been pictured with another weapon. What is it? He's got a sword. This rider has a bow. This rider wears a Stephanos. 
It's a victor's crown in Greek. The one place in Revelation when you see Jesus on a horse quite clearly is in Revelation chapter 19. And in chapter 19 verse 12, Jesus wears many diademata. You ever heard thunk? Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. I'm not Mark, he's better than me, but that's the song. If you go to that song and you look at the tune at the bottom of the page, do you know what the name of that tune is? Diademata. It's the Greek word for king's crowns. Jesus wears a different kind of crown than this guy. Royal crowns. This rider goes out conquering and to conquer. If you've got the NIV, it says he rode out bent on conquest. Why does Je- what does Jesus have left to conquer when he's holding the title deed in his hand? He doesn't have to conquer it. It's his. No, 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 no. This rider on this white horse is not Jesus. But I bet you know who this is. He's one of the more famous characters in Scripture, and there's always a slight hush around his name because you're either scared to mention it or you're going to get labeled a crazy person who watches too much History Channel. (coughs) This rider is one we know as Antichrist. This is the first place in the book of Revelation he rears his head. John refers to Antichrist, the same John who wrote the book of Revelation, refers to Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, or some of your Bibles may have just the word Antichrist, but it might be capitalized. Um, I'm quoting from the New King James on your handout, so that's why you have the Antichrist. John says, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. But even now, many antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. Who is a liar, verse 22, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So, according to John, there is the spirit of antichrist, and and by spirit, that doesn't necessarily mean a specific demonic spirit at this point. Point, but there is the spirit in the sense of sentiment leading up to the formal personified Antichrist. What is the spirit of Antichrist? Well, John tells us Antichrist is the one who denies the Father and the Son. That he's not just a person somewhere forward in some future. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world right now. And that's how John says you can tell that the last hour is quickly approaching. That the spirit of Antichrist is already moving in the world. And what John tells us is that is coming to a point. And when Jesus pulls off that first seal, the full power and personification of that spirit will find itself in one man. The Antichrist does not appear on the world stage until after a falling away occurs. Where does that come from? 2 Thessalonians verses 3 and 4. 
Paul says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So falling away. You can't fall away from something if you did not at least profess to be part of it. Right? Now, I'm not standing up here. I do not believe that a real Christian can fall away from salvation. The Bible's just the Bible doesn't give me that. Okay? I do believe in once saved, always saved, because if you pull out your Bible, you'll find it does too. Okay? Now, what I do believe a person can fall away from is a false profession of faith. It happens every day. That you can probably think of somebody who grew up and you would say, I remember them. They used to be here. They used to be here every Sunday. They, they sang the songs. They might have even come to Sunday school. Occasionally they got... But, but they didn't just stop coming to church. There's no vestige of Christianity left in their life at all. Other than maybe just them saying, yeah, I'm still a Christian. But you wouldn't know that if they didn't tell you. What Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians is that eventually one day, that veneer, that nominal Christianity is going to disappear. That there's going to be no reason to call yourself a Christian anymore. If you're not one. That we're going to return to the earliest days of Christianity. When if you called yourself a Christian, you were ostracized at best and executed at worst. Y'all, there are some places in the world where it's there already. But by and large, in the Western world, though it is fading quicker than I can run my mouth, and that's pretty fast. In the Western world, it is fading as we sit here speaking. There are less and less and less and fewer and fewer and fewer social advantages to calling yourself a Christian. Are there not? That eventually one day, somebody, I wonder who that might be, is going to say what everyone is thinking, but because of the supernatural restraint of God no one has been willing to act on, eventually somebody's going to step up and say, none of you believe this, so why why don't you just stop lying and we can move on with the human race without this idea of God that none of you believe anyway. He's going to have the courage to say it. And much in the same way that when the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit moves in people's hearts to say, do you know God's talking to you? One day when Antichrist says that and the seal is pulled off and God lets people indulge in the darkness and wickedness of their hearts, they're going to hear him say, dispense with God, and they're going to say, he's talking to me. That there's a large and growing segment of humanity that is waiting for Antichrist the same way we waited for Jesus. You scared yet? (laughs) 
Antichrist will rise to power on the wings of a God-forsaking, not God-forsaken, God-forsaking humanity who is hungry for His appearance. He will deny God and take the title for Himself and the world will welcome it. Why? That might sound ridiculous to you. It shouldn't. Romans 1, 20 and 21 says, Since the creation of the world, His, whose, God's, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Who? Everyone! Who God is, and that God is, is obvious if you open your eyes and you walk outside. Look around. Look at creation. When you're walking through the woods, if you look on the ground and you see a watch laying on the ground, what do you say? Huh, somebody lost their watch. You don't look at a watch on the ground and say, wow, can you believe over billions of years all of these matters in these woods magically coalesced and through random science and activity and math that we can't even believe amongst all these rocks, a watch formed. It's amazing how chance and evolution works. You don't say that, do you? Why? Because it's silly. It doesn't make sense. If you see a watch, there's a watchmaker. If you see complexity, you assume a designer because common sense tells you that's the case. So how in the world can you look out at creation and go, this was all random? It doesn't make sense and I can't explain. You Christians are silly. You've just got to have faith that random chance would produce a complex universe. They're without excuse because although they knew God, they can walk out the door and they can see the same thing that you see, but although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, what happens is when you turn away from light, you are necessarily looking into what? Darkness. So when you turn away from the light that is God and the wisdom that is God and the goodness that is God and the structure that is God and the order that is God and you turn around and go the other way, you're walking into darkness, disorder, wickedness, evil, and death. There's only two ways to go. And humanity ever since we said, hmm, that fruit looks good, we've been doing this. Slowly turning away from the light. Even when the light came into the darkness and shone and the darkness did not comprehend it. It took the Holy Spirit reaching into your heart and giving you the ability to go, there's light over there. I should go there. You didn't do that on your own. It took God coming to you. And God in His graciousness has been restraining humanity so that we're only walking into the darkness instead of running with blinders. The first seal, the blinders come off and the Nikes go on. We're running full speed toward total darkness. 
The spirit of Antichrist that lives in the world right now leads those who give in to it down a pathway of moral degradation and human disintegration. And the Antichrist himself is the ultimate expression of this. In the same way that Jesus is the ultimate expression of what humanity was always supposed to be in an uncorrupted world, Antichrist is the ultimate expression of what humanity, fallen humanity looks like devoid of the merciful restraint of God. This man is the end product of a broken species that has finally been allowed to fully exercise all of our wicked and baser instincts through his blasphemous use of an able body and an intelligent mind. Imagine all of the evil that humanity is capable of doing rolled into one person who has no filter and no barrier to stop him from doing it. Think back just a second to the Tower of Babel. It's not on your handout. If you've never heard of the Tower of Babel, you're about to get the, the Reader's Digest version. God had told humanity to, to fill the earth and subdue it, right? So what did humanity do? Humanity said, let's all gather up in one spot. They did the exact opposite. And they said, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's be scattered, you know, like God told us to be. Let's make a name for ourselves. And we'll build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And God looks down from heaven at their tower and says, now they're working together and nothing will be withheld from them. Do you know that when humanity sets its mind to something and really puts its shoulder to the plow, the only thing that can stop us is God. Otherwise, we'll get there. Now that sounds encouraging until you realize that we're a broken, twisted race. And allowed unfettered to charge ahead into what we think is best is nothing but death and destruction. Take, for instance, our own individual lives. Have you ever been totally convinced that you knew what was best for you and you charged into it ahead and against the commands of God and found out that it wasn't nearly as good as you thought it was going to be? Have you ever praised God for not giving you what you wanted? Yes, Lord, I have. I sure have. I think there's a country song that says, I thank God for unanswered prayers. <laughs> because y'all, we want silly things sometimes. Now imagine for just a second that all of the silly things you've wanted, God let you have. There's a frustration that exists in the heart of fallen humanity that knows whenever we see something shiny or something that we know we're not supposed to have, there's a frustration that exists in the heart of fallen humanity that says, Why not? Why can't I have it? It's pleasant to the eye and it's good for food and it's desirable to make one wise. Why would you keep the best for me, God? And Satan goes, yeah, why would he? There can't be any good reason for that. 
If God was really good, he wouldn't keep the best from you. See, what's really between you and really becoming the person you want to be, what's really between you and fully realizing your potential is this idea that you have to obey some God you've never seen. If you would just get rid of that. But the problem is inside fallen humanity, you want so badly to just do bad and not feel bad about it. Don't lie. You've thought that. (laughs) I would love to do this and not feel guilty. That's why there's whole branches of psychology and counseling to manage guilt. Not manage behavior, but manage guilt. To help you do what you want to do and then counsel you not to feel guilty about it. Counselors, am I right? There are people who teach that. Thank you. i got counselors in here nodding their heads. The problem is not the action. The problem is that you feel guilty about it. Any of y'all ever heard the name Frederick Nietzsche? I loathe that man. But I'm going to read from him. I'm actually going to read a synopsis from a man named Christopher Moscato. He teaches history at the University of Northern Colorado. That Nietzsche foresaw someone that he referred to in German as the Ubermensch. It's easier in English to say Superman. That one day there would come someone named Superman, not someone who could jump over buildings or run faster than trains or dodge bullets or anything like that, but he would have a unique ability that would lead humanity into its next phase of evolution. And listen to this. So what makes the Superman so important to Nietzsche? Can he leap over tall buildings? Is he faster than a speeding bullet? No, but he can transcend 19th century European morality. Nietzsche was one of the first major proponents of a philosophy we call nihilism. The nihilists believed that there were no moral truths. Nietzsche in particular espoused a strongly atheistic vision of this philosophy. The Christian church was an institution, therefore, that created morality in order to subjugate the masses. God's just telling you not to do that because He doesn't want what's best for you. The Christians are just telling you not to do these certain things because they want to keep you under their thumb. The problem's not you. The problem's the church. The popular belief in a single universal morality that gives humanity purpose and direction is nothing more than an illusion. That's Nietzsche. In this worldview, the superman is the person who is able to break the illusion. Basically, the superman recognizes that society's definition of morality is biased and socially constructed. So what the superman is able to do is the superman is finally the human being who crosses that last barrier and feels no guilt. There's nothing wrong with anything I do because if I can do it, I have the right to do it. And no one has the right to tell me not to do it. If you think you have the right to tell me not to do it, then come and stop me. That's Antichrist. That's Nietzsche's Superman. Living by his own moral code gives the Superman a deep sense of morality, a steadfast purpose, might I add, his own. In this enlightened position... The Superman is dedicated solely to the advancement and betterment of humanity. 
Because that's exactly what someone would do if turned loose to do whatever they wanted, right? It's better everybody else. In fact, as the Superman is aware of suffering of existence, he is even willing to sacrifice his own self in order to improve humanity. Over time, he will help other people break from the bonds of institutional morality and thus become a figure who impacts history forever. In fact, Nietzsche defined humans as being the link between animals and the Superman. Humanity is constantly caught in a struggle between the animalistic instincts and a pull towards a more perfect existence. On that note, we must remember that the Superman has yet to appear. This is the prophetic element of Nietzsche's philosophy. The Superman will one day appear to save the world, but is not yet a person who lives or has lived among us. It is an ideal, something to strive towards, not an existing model to emulate. In other words, the Antichrist is coming. He's not here yet, but there are people waiting on him. There are folks waiting on somebody to tell them that my way or the highway is okay. That there's no God there who's going to punish me. There's no reason I need to do anything other than what I want to do. Is the Antichrist a violent, horrific, demonic man? Yes. But is he unique? No. Anytime someone hears the gospel preached and they say, I'd rather have it my way. I don't need that. The church is just a bunch of hypocritical people who want to tell me what I'm not allowed to do, even though I know they're not perfect themselves. I don't like organized religion. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. That I can do good without God. What the Antichrist is going to do when he shows up is vindicate what they think. That God's finally going to remove the block. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7-12 For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. What? God will send them delusion? That doesn't seem fair. You forget all God's doing is giving them what they want. They want a right to choose their own path and do their own thing and be their own person without God inhibiting them. And so God says, okay. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Anytime you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ calling you, pleading you, begging you, come to the cross, be saved. Your soul is dark and sinful and dead. That there is no hope for you outside of Jesus Christ. You think you walk in light, you walk in darkness. You think you walk in life, you walk in death. You cannot earn your way into glory, but Christ has earned your glory for you. All you have to do is go to Calvary and die with Christ so that you can also live with Him. It is a free gift offered to you that has eternal benefit. All you have to do is come. Anytime you hear that and you say, no, I want my way, Satan is saying, you wait, I'm sending one for you. As soon as God lets me, 
As soon as he lets the wall down, I've got the one you've been waiting on. That he's going to be the fulfillment of your aspirations. He'll be your true, true total role model. And God in that day will let you believe it. So what is your application? Don't waste time. I am begging you, y'all. You may not wait. You may not be alive in the time when the Antichrist comes. But I promise you, if you turn on the news tomorrow, you would certainly debate me. You may not be alive when the actual Antichrist comes. But y'all, as a pastor, let me tell you something. I have been in a room with a person before that I know for a fact the Holy Spirit sent me to share the gospel with. I was sitting at my desk in here working on a sermon and it hit me like a truck. I couldn't think of truck brands other than Mac. That's what I was stopping for. Hit me like a Mac truck. You need to get up and you need to go to this person's house. I knew that voice because I'm trying to be a dutiful little sheep. So I closed my Bible, I got in my car, and I drove to so-and-so's house. And I had a conversation with this person. I shared the entirety of the gospel with them three times and it was very uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable because it was very obvious that this was not going anywhere. And I kept wanting to leave. But this little voice in the back of my head said, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. So I kept talking. I have no problem with that. I kept talking. Almost mid-sentence. Get in your car. And you know what? I've never been called back again. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. But there may come a day when you no longer hear that knock. You do not know you ever heard a drunk say, I can quit drinking anytime I want to? Can they? I can come to Christ anytime I want to. Are you sure? Because no one can come, but the, the Spirit calls them. If you're being called right now, you better come today. And I'm not saying that to fuss at you, to yell at you. I'm not angry at you. I'm not condemning you. I'm not ridiculing you. I am begging you. Because I'm a pastor. I'm not God. I can't call you to salvation the way the Holy Spirit can. So if He's calling you and you hear Him, you answer Him today. Because if you keep putting it off, one day somebody else will come calling and God will let you answer. And from that point, there is no return. Beware. What will you do today? Second, what does good without God look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like utter destruction because it doesn't exist. It looks like utter destruction because it doesn't exist. Uh, we're going to cover all of verses 3 through 8 right here because they all have to do with the ramifications of accepting Antichrist into the world. Uh, 
this was something else that Nietzsche read, and it's much shorter than the last one. Uh, but Nietzsche recognized something that is what gives the world such a hard time relieving itself of religion. Because it seems like even when... Have you ever noticed that when an atheist blasts Christianity and says there's no reason to believe it, they still seem to want to cling to Christian morality? Like they don't want the Christian God, but they still want to enjoy the benefits of the the majority of the Ten Commandments. They don't want God, but they do want forbidding someone to steal. They don't want God, but they also don't want someone to murder them. They don't want God, but they somehow still see a problem with lying. Well, Nietzsche picked on them, and Nietzsche said, you guys are nuts. Because don't you understand that the Christian God and the Christian's morals all go together? If you've got the God, you've got the morals. If you don't have the God, you don't have the morals either. There is no middle ground. Either you have both of them or you have neither of them. He says when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. This point has to be exhibited again and again despite the English flatheads. Thanks, Frederick. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking the one main concept out of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. Nothing necessary remains in one's hands. Christianity presupposes that man does not know, cannot know what is good for him or what is evil. He believes in God, who alone knows it. Christian morality is a command. Its origin is transcendent. It is beyond all criticism, all right right to criticism. It has truth only if God is the truth. It stands and falls with faith in God. And he's right. If God is there, then this is absolute. Just because I'm a pastor, I don't get to stand up here and decide what I preach and what I don't. Okay? You know, when somebody asks me, what are you preaching Sunday? I say, what's next? Well, how are you going to handle those verses? I'll tell you when I get there. But it's in there, so that's what we're going to do. When the English actually believe they intuitively know what is good and evil, when they therefore suppose they no longer require Christianity as the guarantee of morality, we merely witness the effects of the dominion of the Christian value judgment and an expression of the strength and depth of this dominion. In other words, Christianity is so deeply rooted in them that even when they try and get rid of it, they can't get rid of its moralities. I think he's got it backwards. The morality is rooted so deeply in how God created us that there's no way you can escape it. The reason that people can't break away from that morality is because it's created in them. But one day God is going to allow a man to rise up who does not have that inhibition. He will not care about morality and everyone that follows him will get this. First, the red horse, the second seal, conflict. If you'll notice, it doesn't just say war. It says that there will be conflict... Between, let me, let me look, to take peace from the earth and people should kill one another. It doesn't just say war. Y'all, that's your neighbors. That's the people who live down the street from you. That's the person who cuts you off in the drive through That's your family members that right now you're just not talking to. 
It is worldwide conflict with no restraint. It's the second seal. The black horse. What happens whenever there's worldwide conflict? Well, right now, humanity can at the very least get along enough to feed one another. We can at the very least produce food to eat. But what happens when everybody is out for their own good? We don't work together anymore. I'm just interested about feeding me, feeding my own. If you can feed yours with your own, that's your own problem. But we're not working together. I'm dealing with me, you're dealing with you, and I will kill you if you get in my way. What happens? Worldwide famine. He says a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. That means that one person would have to work all day just for enough for one meal. Not three plus snacks. That the worldwide famine is going to be bad enough that you would have to work an entire day just for one meal. And if you're going to feed a family, you could get barley instead of wheat, which was cheaper and less nutritious. So you, your wife, and all your kids could have one unnutritious meal a day if you worked all day. And that's everyone worldwide. It will be short because the angel says don't harm the oil and the wine. Those crops took longer to mature. Their roots run deeper, so they seem to survive through this seal. Then fourth, finally, what follows conflict, famine, and worldwide scarcity? Where does that end? Death. The fourth seal. 25% of the world's population will be wiped out as a result of this seal. Right about now, that's around 2 billion people. That's like if China disappeared. Josh, why are you telling me about all of this stuff? This seems horrible. That's the point. What does life without God when humanity finally gets to do everything it wants to do without God restraining us, with us being able to do what we want, when we want, how we want, what does it look like? It looks like 25% of the world's population being dead in less than a two-year period. The reason you have breath in your lungs is God. The reason you have clothes on your back is God. The reason you have food in your refrigerator is God. The reason that you're not killing your neighbors or your neighbors aren't killing you is God. The reason that there is food in the supermarket for people to buy is God. He brings the rain on the wicked and on the righteous. That He is gracious right now. But one day, I am warning you, He will take His hand away for humanity to do exactly what they want. Are you ready for Him or are you ready for Antichrist? James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That if you listen to God, if you trust Him, He will provide for you. He is good. But if you want your own way, Psalm 81, 10 through 12, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. What do you want? Because ultimately, that's what God will give you.
that I told you this sermon was going to be heavy. But I don't know how to give you a more passionate call for the gospel than I just did.